We are starting a new series tonight, and it's titled Heroes. And on the front of your notes, towards the bottom, I have put a quote, and the quote comes uh, from this book. It's one of the most scholarly books in my library, Jesus Storybook Bible. It's by a lady named Sally Lloyd-Jones, and we'll put her picture up there so you can get a glimpse of what she looks like. And uh, she's written this book. It sold a ton of copies and uh, I joke about it, it really is a great book, and it really is good theology, and you really will learn something if you read it, if you haven't read it, and uh, if you've got kids or grandkids, they need a copy. We've, uh, we've worn out a couple of copies at our house, and I think we've got a few more that uh, aren't worn out yet. It's got great pictures, and uh, I'm just going to read to you a quote, and it's on your notes so you can follow along. It's from the very first chapter in the book. And uh, I think it will help us tonight as we begin this series, at least help you and me be on the same page about a series called Heroes. So follow along. Some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you. You should just underline that phrase. The Bible isn't mainly about you or what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid, they run away, at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There's lots of stories in the Bible But all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. So that's right out of the the first chapter in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the things in that quote that I really want you to grab onto as we begin is, first of all, the idea, I've emphasized it, I paused there and mentioned you should underline it. The Bible is not mostly about you. It's about God and what he's done. You've got to get that through your brain, and I've got to get it through my brain. The second thing is, the Bible is not principally a book of rules. From a very young age, I've heard, I think, well-meaning people call the Bible, B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. That's kind of cutesy, but what you're saying is this is just a book of things you need to do before you die. And I agree with Miss Jones, that's not really what the Bible is. It's not just a to-do list that you need to check all these things off so you know you go to heaven when you die. It's not just a book of rules. And it's not just a book of heroes. And if you've ever read the Old Testament and just read it honestly, straightforward, at face value, you've read about some really, really rotten people. 
And if you've read all the way through the Old Testament, you've read multiple stories that you probably wouldn't want to tell your children, and to be honest with you, are not in this children's Bible story book. Stories about people, we'll read one of them tonight about uh, Lot, and stories about uh, Judah, and stories about some of the judges. I mean, there's some really rotten stuff in here. And so I give you this quote, and I say it's not a book about heroes, and then I give you a handout, and at the top it's got a nice little picture, and it says heroes on it. And you say, what in the world is going on? Why would we, why would we do a series on heroes and start off saying the Bible is not a book about heroes? Well, let me explain it, and let me explain it with a scripture verse. I'll put these verses up on the screen just so we don't have to turn to 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 10, 4, 6, and 11. I'm piecing together several verses out of the same passage. It says, they drank from the spiritual rock. You say, who is the they? The they is the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt and they're wandering in the desert. And we're going to be talking about this on Sunday mornings over the next couple of weeks. They needed something to drink. And at one point, Moses takes his staff at God's instruction and he hits this rock and water comes out for the people. And we're going to talk about the meaning of that, the significance of it. Paul is saying they, the people, drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Just right there off the bat, what Paul is saying is it's not a story about the Israelites. It's a story about Jesus all the way back in Exodus. We think, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus comes along in the Gospels. When you get all the way to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's where Jesus comes in. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, no, 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 he's all the way back in Exodus. That story is about Jesus. The rock was Christ. These things, he goes on, and he says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We read that verse Sunday morning. And then he goes on and he says, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And so a couple of things I just want to point out here. Paul is telling us that all the way through the Old Testament, all the way back to the Exodus, and we could even go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the story is a story about Jesus. And somehow there's a way where Jesus fits in and makes sense of the story. And if you read it as just about Abraham or just about the Hebrews or just about whoever or just about you, you miss the point. It's not about you. And it's not really about those guys. It's about God and what he's done to save his people. And somehow Jesus fits into that. The second thing he says here, you can't deny it, is these stories are written for our instruction. Like they're an example for us. And that can be a good example or a bad example. That can be, hey, these people did this and it was really rotten. You should avoid this and not do it. Or, hey, these people did the right thing in this instance and you should follow their example here. So there is something we can learn. So just to be totally honest, when I say we're going to have a series on Wednesday nights and we're going to talk about, quote unquote, heroes, I'm titling the series Heroes with a little bit of sarcasm. Because as we go through this series and we talk about each one of these people that we say, what a great hero of the faith, we're going to read about things in their lives and things in, the, in their past that are not at all flattering. Things that when you think about it say, eh, maybe that person shouldn't be one of my heroes. And maybe the point isn't to say Ruth is the greatest ever. Maybe the point is to say Ruth was a small part in what God ultimately did to save his people through Jesus. 
and how do we make those connections. So that's sort of the goal, to look at their lives, to learn from their example, positive and negative, but then to put it in the context of the Old Testament and the context of redemption and say, how does this person point me forward to Jesus? What do they teach me about the gospel? And so we're going to start tonight with Ruth. When I let you guys vote uh, a few weeks back, gave you a whole bunch of Old Testament Bible characters and uh, the only complaint I got was there weren't enough women on the list, but all the women on the list made the cut. So they're all in, and we're going to talk about all of them, and we're starting with Ruth. And uh, when I had to cut one because of our bad weather night the other night, I didn't cut a woman. I cut one of the guys, so that makes the odds even a little bit uh, closer to the middle. So we're going to start with Ruth. The first thing I want you to see is the Old Testament storyline. And I'll just be honest, we're going to do, I think, 19 of these. By the 19th one, you're going to be rolling your eyes at me at this point. You're going to be like, oh, you have said that 19 times now, and you can just move on and say something else because we got it. But I'm going to keep saying it because I don't think most people, even most church-going people, understand the storyline of the Old Testament. If I just said, you have 30 seconds to summarize the Old Testament story, ready, set, go. Uh, in the beginning, uh, Adam and Eve, I, I just think most people would struggle with that. And I think when you see these characters in the flow of the Old Testament story, it helps you to make sense of it. So I'll put a little timeline up. This looks a little bit different than what you have in your notes, but you get the idea, and it's the same, the same words here. This is a storyline of the Old Testament. We start with creation. We move very quickly to the fall where Adam and Eve rebel against God and sin separates them from God. They have to leave the garden. I'm leaving out things. I realize that this isn't comprehensive, but it's a big picture. You move into the flood where God destroys the world for its wickedness, uh, wipes out all life on the earth, but he saves Noah and his family and the animals in the ark. They get off the ark. Things immediately get just as bad as they were before, and we move into a period that we'll call the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons, okay, the patriarchs. And on the tail end of that, we move into the Exodus. And we've been talking about that on Sunday morning, so I won't belabor that too much. But they end up in Egypt, and 400 years later, God brings them out in the Exodus. When he brings them out, he gives his people the law. That happens at Mount Sinai. There's a lot of interesting things that happen between the Exodus and the law that we're skipping over. But the next big period is the conquest. Moses dies, Joshua was the leader, and the people get ready to go into the promised land. They conquer the land, they for the most part take it over and sort of settle in this land that God's promised them. And the next period, which is where we're at tonight, is the judges. It's probably the weirdest time in all the Bible. You read the stories in the book of Judges and you just think, this is not right, this is not good. But that's the judges and that's where we're at tonight. After the judges, the people want a king. God has already promised to give them a king at some point. So they get a king, and that's initially Saul. You know how that ends. We move on to David. David dies. You go to Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom is divided. And so that's division. We move from the monarchy to the division. The kingdom is divided. Rehoboam takes part. Jeroboam takes part. And you've got Israel and Judah kind of tracking along. Israel is consistently rotten all the way through. Judah is kind of back and forth. they got a good king here and a bad king here, and they sort of flop back and forth. Eventually, both of them go into exile. 
They get kicked out of the promised land for their disobedience and their wickedness. They get sent into exile first in Assyria. Israel goes to exile in Assyria. And then Judah is taken to exile in Babylon. And then after 70 years of exile for Judah and Babylon, God brings them back and that's the return. That's the whole Old Testament. That's the story. Everything in the Old Testament fits in that story somewhere. Every book, every author, every character, all of them fit in with that. And Ruth fits in with the book of Judges. And I just want you to see uh, in the text, take your Bible out, look at Ruth chapter 1, and I just want you to see how this works and just sort of get a feel for what things were like in this point in Israel's history. So if you look at Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, it says, this is like once upon a time, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. And the story goes on. We'll come back to that here in just a minute, but it sets it in the days of the judges. And if you flip back to the left and you look at Judges chapter 2, we'll read a few verses just to get the feel of, okay, the judges are ruling. Well, what was it like? How are things going? Judges chapter 2, starting in verse 6, says, Joshua dismissed the people. The people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There's a massive failure to transfer the faith from one generation to the next. And for the most part, you have a whole new generation comes up and the people don't know the Lord. Verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. This probably sounds familiar if you've read the book of Judges, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back, and they were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And that's the cycle all the way through the book of Judges. God's angry with them. He sends an oppressor, someone to punish them or to discipline them. They cry out in misery. God is moved to pity. He sends a judge, and God's with the judge, and they experience some measure of deliverance, some measure of relief, 
and then they go right back to their same old wicked ways. And it just gets played on repeat over and over and over again. And you've got to have in your brain, when we talk about Ruth, that's what life is like. That's all Ruth knows. She wasn't part of the, the Exodus generation. She wasn't there for all that conquest stuff. All that generation is gone. And she comes along into this family, this Jewish family that is experiencing this in Israel. And she's not even part of that. She's an outsider to all of that. But all she knows of Israel is this continued cycle of rebellion and a judge and deliverance and more sin. And it just gets put on repeat over and over and over again. So let's talk about our life story. The book of Ruth is not very long. This is one of the uh, handful of quote-unquote heroes that we could just read the whole book. But it takes a decent amount of time to read all of the book of Ruth. And rather than do that, we're going to just break her life down into episodes and read a few verses as we go. So episode one in Ruth's life is we'll call the prelude. The prelude. We read verse one. It says, in the days of the judges, there was a famine. If you've read through the Old Testament, you know that sometimes exciting things happen when a famine pops up. That's almost like a clue in the Old Testament, that something neat or something cool is about to happen. It's like when you read, there's a woman who couldn't have children in the Bible. That means something neat's about to happen. God's going to do something. Well, here there's a famine, and this Jewish family, the dad is Elimelech, and his wife is Naomi. You see this in verse uh, 2. They have two sons named Malon and Kilion. They have nothing to eat in Bethlehem. There's no food. Kind of reminds you of the Exodus, everyone having to go to Egypt to buy grain. Well, again, there's no food, and so they leave. They leave the promised land. They leave Bethlehem, and they go to a place called Moab, and they're refugees. Like They've fled their homeland. They go to a place where they don't know the language or the culture or the customs or the people or anything because they literally have nothing to eat. So they show up in Moab, and the boys get married. Malon and Kilion find wives. And their names, now I'm down in verse 4, are Orpah and Ruth. These guys get married. And then, as if all that wasn't bad enough that you've had to flee your home and run away and be a refugee, the dad dies, Elimelech. And then the boys die, Malon and Kilion. And now you've got Naomi, a widow, in a foreign country. Her husband's dead. Her sons are dead. That's a distressing situation in the ancient world to be a widow with no one, no male in your family to quote-unquote provide for you. And she's got these two daughter-in-laws that she somehow is sort of connected to, responsible for, has a relationship with. All of that is the prelude. Next episode is we'll call the return. The return. Naomi really doesn't know what to do, but she hears there's food in Bethlehem again. So she says, I'm going back to Bethlehem. And she looks her daughter-in-laws in the eye, and she says, you need to go home to your parents. And Orpah says, I'm out. Nice knowing you. And Ruth says, I'm not leaving you. And we'll read the, probably the most famous verses in Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you. Or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, and notice in the text, it's L-O-R-D, all caps. She's not just talking about God in general. She's not talking about the God of the Moabites. She's talking about Yahweh, the God of Israel. May Yahweh, the God of Israel, do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, so she said no more. So they go back to Bethlehem. And it just so happens, just coincidentally, in the providence of God, it's all lined up, it's all timed right, that when they go back, it's the barley harvest. That's where Boaz comes in, and Boaz is episode number three. So you've got the prelude, you've got the return to Bethlehem, and then we meet Boaz. This is pretty straightforward. Ruth says, hey, I hear there's a place I can go glean Meaning, as they're harvesting the barley, they leave a little bit on the edges. They don't pick it up if it falls behind them. That's part of the, uh, the welfare state, essentially, in Israel. And she says, maybe I can go grab us something to eat. So she goes to Boaz's field. Uh, we're sort of collapsing things down here. But Boaz thinks, you know, that's a nice-looking lady. Who is she? Where'd she come from? She doesn't look like one of us. She has a funny accent. Maybe she dresses different. I don't know. But he wants to know about her, and he gets the backstory. And basically, he kind of steps up and takes care of her. He tells the foreman, you need to watch out for this lady. You need to drop a little bit extra for this lady. You need to help this lady out and be kind to her. And when Naomi figures out everything that's going on, I've had some people kind of get upset with me for saying this in church. But essentially, what Naomi tells Ruth to do is, you need to go kind of put the moves on this guy. Like, this is a good situation. And I don't mean that like in a, a trashy way, but she's like, let's, let's not just sit around and wait for something to happen here, right? Like, you need to go and make plain to this man Boaz what your intentions are, or essentially what our intentions are. And so she does that, and that's where we come to episode four, which we'll call Redemption. Boaz is presented as a guy who loves the Lord, who cares about his law. So he goes through the right channels so that he can marry Ruth. And they're married, and they have a baby named Obed. And I just want you to see something in chapter 1, and I want you to compare it to chapter 4, just to see the progression of where things have gone in this story. So look at Ruth 1, verse 20. This is right when they get back to Bethlehem. She said to them, this is Naomi talking to the women in the village of Bethlehem. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. And if you have a footnote in your Bible, you might look down there and it says Mara means bitter. If you're going to be here Sunday, we're going to talk about the people coming out uh, from Egypt. And they just crossed the Red Sea and they sing a great worship song. Then they go three days out in the wilderness and they have nothing to drink, and they finally find some water, and the text says it was Mara water, bitter water. Like it was no good, not drinkable. The same word that Naomi uses, and this is very, you know, positive and optimistic. She says, I don't want to be called Naomi, which means pleasant. I want to be called bitter because the Lord uh, has made my life Bitter. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. I imagine Ruth felt, you know, very valuable at that point. You're coming back totally empty. Well, I'm with you, but you can understand what she's saying. I've lost my husband. I've lost my sons. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back 
empty. There's also some irony in that verse, right? Because she went away with an empty stomach, but she comes back and has a full stomach. So she's kind of selective in what she's thinking about and what she's focusing on. But she says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Why would you, why would you call me pleasant? My life hasn't been pleasant. The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now go to the end of the book, chapter 4, verse 14. This is right after uh, Boaz and Ruth have a baby. And we read this. Then the women said to Naomi. So you've got a reversal here, right? Whoever wrote this is being very intentional in how they wrote it. Naomi says to the women, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. At the end of the story, you have the women saying to Naomi, blessed be the Lord, blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you. Remember what Naomi said? I've been, I've been brought back empty. Like these ladies are saying. <clears throat> your daughter-in-law who loves you. Who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, laid him on his lap, and she became his nurse. And the women gave him a name. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So you can see this, this path of redemption that Naomi has experienced. And the last section we'll call the postlude. So we had a prelude, and you also have a postlude. And it's at the very end of the book, and we'll read it quickly Ruth 4, 18 through the end. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. It starts with Perez. And if you don't know who Perez is, then you just need to go back and connect Perez to the patriarchs because there's a pretty close connection between Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then you've got a link through Judah to Perez. So that's the end of the book is this postlude in the genealogy. We'll come back to that here in just a minute. Let's talk about negatives and positives. Okay? These things are written for our example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Is there a negative to be warned of and is there a positive to learn from? Here's a negative. Ruth was ethnically a Moabite, or you could say a Moabitess, which meant she grew up worshiping the idols of Moab. And that may seem kind of obvious. I just want you to think about that. We live in a multicultural place in Odessa and in the United States. And there are many religious options available to people. I realize that most people, even with all the options available... Research shows most people grow up and they follow the religious tradition of their parents. That's almost inescapable. They at least identify with the religious affiliation of their parents. But the options are there. And in this country, at least, nobody's sort of holding a gun to your head, threatening you if you want to convert from one thing to another. 
you just got to remind yourself that was not life for Ruth growing up, right? When Ruth grew up in Moab, it's not like as she drove to school in the morning, she passed the Baptist church and the Methodist church and the Catholic church and the Lutheran church and the mosque and a Jewish synagogue and all. She didn't have options. There were no options. No one was entertaining the question, what religion are you going to be? If you were a Moabite, you worship the gods of Moab. That's just what you did. That's how it was. There was no option to be anything other than that. Which means in her upbringing, in her formative years, she was told, these are your gods. And they were false gods. And they were idols. Did she wrestle with that or struggle with that? We're not told in the text, but we have no reason to believe that she questioned that growing up. That was just her world. That's just what she knew. She grew up worshiping the idols of Moab. And I just want you to let's take your Bible, and we're going to trace through these verses quickly. Because I want you to see, and I want you to understand who the Moabites were. That's just another ite name in the Old Testament to most of us. You know, the Perizzites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and all the ites that they fought when they went in. But I want you to see a few things about the Moabites and we'll build up to who their God was, their principal God. So go back to Genesis 19. You want to talk about one of those stories that doesn't make the cut for a children's Bible. Genesis 19, starting in verse 30. This is after God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and he saves Lot. This is what we read, Genesis 19.30. Lot went up out of Zoar. He lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. He lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There's not a man of the earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve our offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when he lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let's make him drink wine tonight. Also, then you go in and lie down with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. I realize Ruth didn't have anything to do with that. I'm not trying to blame Ruth for Genesis 19. I'm just saying to you, those are her people. That's where she came from. That's how the Moabites originated. And again, that's just a, an odd story and a strange story and not one that we probably talk about a whole lot in church. Fast forward to the book of Exodus 15. Exodus 15. And uh, let's look at verse 13. This is actually part of our passage for this upcoming Sunday. Exodus 15, 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people's... Have heard. When you read peoples like that in the Old Testament, it's not talking about Jewish peoples, it's talking about non Jewish peoples. Peoples out there, they have heard and they tremble. 
pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. What Moses is saying is the Moabites, we're tracking the Moabites, they've heard everything that you've done in Egypt. They know all about the plagues. They've heard about the Red Sea. They know the promises that you've promised us this land. They know we're on our way, and they're terrified. To which you say, well, did they convert? Did they lay down their gods and publicly burn them and convert to to Judaism or to be part of the Hebrews? And the answer is absolutely no. When you get to the book of Numbers, we won't read all of Numbers 22, 23, and 24, but you meet the king of the Moabites, and his name is Balak. And Balak comes up with a plan. Rather than submit to the Hebrews, rather than convert and join the Hebrews, he says, I'm going to hire a magician, a sorcerer named Balaam, and I'm going to pay Balaam to bring a curse down on these people. Because I've heard all the things. We just read it in Exodus 15. I've heard about the plagues. I've heard about the Red Sea. We cannot beat these people on our own. We can't stand against them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire a magician to curse them. That's a bad decision, right? Like, say, instead of converting and submitting and acknowledging your God is greater than our gods, he tries to use magic to win a battle against these people. And that's where you read the funny story about Balaam and his donkey and God telling Balaam, look, buddy, you're going to say exactly what I tell you to say. There's not going to be any cursing of these people. You're going to say what I tell you to say. And when he goes and Balak is ready for the big curse to come down, just out comes blessing. And he says, oh, that didn't work. Let's try it again. Second time, blessing. He says, you're really killing me, man. We, I am paying you to curse these people, not bless them. And he does it a third time, and again, it's blessing. And God frustrates that, but then you come to Numbers 25. So look at Numbers 25. This is a sad episode. They survived the threat of Balak and Balaam. And then you, you're ready to like breathe a sigh of relief, and you come to Numbers 25, verse 1, 2, and 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people, that is the Moabites, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Here's these pagan people trying to bring curses down on the Hebrews, and God saves them from that by basically controlling the mouth of a donkey and this magician. And the people turn around, and they go to raves over in Moab. And they just fall right in line with everything the Moabites are doing. We're going to go, we're going to sleep with your women, we're going to worship your gods. It all gets mixed up together. Deuteronomy 23, you can look, look that up later. Moses says, and he says this because of Numbers 25, he says, Moabites can't have anything to do with us. They cannot come in. They cannot live with us. We're not going to be friends with them. We're not going to hang out with them. There's certainly the allowance that the Moabites could convert and join Israel, 
But until that happens, Moses says there is a line and there is no Moabite that's going to be part of our assembly. Look at 1 Kings 11. This is moving forward just a little bit. 1 Kings 11. Sounds a lot like Numbers 25. 1 Kings 11 verse 4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to Yahweh, the Lord, his God, as was the heart of David, his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Remember, the Ammonites go all the way back to Lot and his daughters also. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountains east of Jerusalem. So he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. That's a picture of Chemosh, as described in 1 Kings 11 as the abomination of Moab. Chemosh was very similar to Molech. I think most people have a little bit more familiarity with Molech, but these were kind of like cousin people groups, and the gods were kind of all mixed together. And the basic idea is that Chemosh was the high god, and one of the things he required for his favor to rest upon his people was child sacrifice. So you say, okay, Ruth, she grows up in Moab. She doesn't have, you know, first synagogue down on the corner where she can go be part of Jewish worship. She doesn't have options. She just grows up knowing, believing, being taught, hearing, experiencing the worship of Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites whose requirement on his people is you need to take your children and offer them to me as a sacrifice. So that's, that's what she grew up knowing. That's what she grew up experiencing and believing. And obviously we look at the story and we say God brought these people, these, this family, this refugee family into her life. And yes, they died and yes, there was tragedy involved. But through that family, she heard the truth about the Lord. She heard the truth about Yahweh. She heard somebody say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're offering sacrifices, human sacrifices to Chemosh? Let me tell you about something way better than that. We worship Yahweh, the Lord. And this is what he's done for his people. You may have heard of it. He, he brought devastation on the Egyptians. He was more powerful than their gods. He didn't need anyone to fight for him. He went and fought for his people. You realize that would be completely opposite to Ruth when she heard that the first time. Wait a minute. In Moab, we do things for our God. We, we bring these sacrifices for him so that he loves us. You're telling me that the Lord just came and took this people because he loved them, and even though they were wicked and stubborn, he fought for them and he saved them? It's a completely different faith system and a completely different worldview. I also included in here Judges 3, and I put Judges 3 in here because the youth are studying the same thing we're studying about, and the youth really love Judges 3 because Judges 3 is the story of one of the kings of Moab named Eglon who was so fat that when Ehud the assassin snuck in and jabbed him in the belly, his belly just closed in over the sword 
and then he died there, and it's kind of funny. The, the guys, you know, his assistants didn't know if they should go in or not or if he was dying or what he was doing. And so I put that one in there for the youth, and you can read that one later if you want to also. So that's the Moabites and their idols, bad people, bad folks. And uh, that's, that's who Ruth was growing up. God saved her out of that. Uh, something else, negatives and positives. Ruth abandoned the idolatry of her culture to embrace the truth about the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The truth about Yahweh. And I'll let you look up these two verses, uh, Judges 10 and Ruth 1. I'll just sort of describe what they tell you. We read uh, Ruth 1 already. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. She leaves all that stuff behind, all that mess of who the Moabites were. She leaves that behind to become one of, one of the Hebrews. And the irony of ironies is, Judges 10 says, remember all of this is during the days of the Judges. Judges 10 says, in Israel, there were Hebrews abandoning the Lord to worship the gods of the Moabites. You had God's people abandoning the Lord and worshiping Chemosh. And you've got a Moabite woman abandoning Chemosh to worship the Lord. And not only is she leaving her own culture behind when she converts and everything that she knows in her past, your God is my God and your people are my people and where you live, I'm going to live. Like, I'm leaving all of it. But she's also countercultural, countercultural not in her own culture, but in Hebrew culture. Because when she becomes a Hebrew, she looks around and she says, Oh, you goobers are going to worship Chemosh. What's the matter with you guys? And you look at her conversion, and I think it takes on kind of a, a heightened uh, bit of respect from our perspective to say what she did was doubly countercultural. She defies her own culture to worship the Lord. And then when she finds herself among the Lord's people and they're all going after Chemosh, she stays fast in her faith in Yahweh and she doesn't follow them in that uh, abandoning of the Lord. So those are a couple of negatives and positives. How do we get to Jesus? Two thoughts and we'll wrap up Ruth. Ruth is only mentioned in two places in the entire Bible, the book of Ruth and the opening genealogy of Matthew. The only places that you'll find her name in the Bible. Um, it's, it's remarkable when you read Matthew 1 to find her name there. Um, one, it's remarkable that Ruth as a female gets included in a genealogy that's almost all male names. When you read a female name, it sort of stands out to you and uh, you pay attention to that. And if you read Matthew 1, here's the women that are included in Jesus' genealogy. It's quite a list. Tamar... Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And you can go back and read their stories. They have one thing in common. They all had sexual sin in their life or sexual sin committed against them or questions about their sexuality. Like That was an issue for all of those women. There's like a cloud kind of hanging over their head. Sort of everyone kind of looked at them with suspicion like, eh, I don't know. But they're all included in there, Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And it's doubly odd that a Moabite is included in the genealogy of the Messiah, especially when you think about what Moses said. We're not having any Moabites. Moabites did not get to be part of the assembly. 
But she is not really a Moabite anymore because she says, your people are my people. I am no longer a Moabite. She renounces all of that, all of who they were, all that they worshipped, all that they stood for, all their history. And she says, I'm with you guys. So interesting that she's part of that family. And you read it at the end of Ruth, right? I think we read it just a minute ago. But the, the genealogy at the end of Ruth takes you right up to David. And if you remember the book of Judges, what's the refrain at the end of the book of Judges that keeps, keeps coming back on loop? There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's no king, and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And you come to the end of Ruth, which happens during the Judges, and the author has given you this genealogy to say, something good's about to happen. Right? I know that there was some tragedy on the front end. I know that there was some bad things that happened on the front end, but God is still at work. I know it looks like even the Hebrews are converting in mass and worshiping Chemosh. I know things look bad on the surface, but God is at work behind the scenes, in quiet ways, in a, in a person that you wouldn't pick or I wouldn't pick. God is at work. And that leads us to the last idea. Ruth's story reminds us that God works salvation for his people in unlikely ways. Salvation for his people in unlikely ways. I'm going to let you look the verses up in Acts. Both of those passages talk about the cross and the horror of the cross and the, the ugliness of the cross and how the cross was part of God's plan from eternity past. It was what God predestined to happen. It was what he foreordained to come to pass. You can look at those in Acts. And I think the connection ought to be pretty obvious. When you look at the book of Ruth, you read a story that begins with tragedy. Like it's really sad right out of the gate. If you went to a movie and it started like this, like it's an instant downer. First of all, people are starving at least to the point where they have to leave their home and go to a country where they don't know anyone or anything. They have to leave the promised land and go to the place where they worship gods like Chemosh that requires sacrifice of human beings. Like that's pretty bad if you're that hungry that you've got to leave the promised land to go there. It's that bad, and then it gets worse because uh, Elimelech and Malon and Kilion croak, and they all die. And it's like this, the wheels are coming off. This is terrible. And you've already read the book of Judges, so you know how crazy things are. And you think, well, what, could, what, what good is going to come out of this? And you can feel for Naomi when she says, just call me bitter. Everything's terrible. Just call me bitter. And the point of Ruth is, out of death and disaster and destruction, God brings life. And he brings hope. And what starts off with a famine and people dying, three funerals, ends with a baby shower and a party and a wedding and things that are happy and exciting. And the women say, hey, we are not calling you Mara anymore. We're going we're gonna to name this baby for you and we're going to be part. This is exciting. God has been great to you. You've got this great daughter. God has been faithful and God has been good. And out of disaster, God brings something great. Not only for this family on the small scale, but for his people on a larger scale. 
You say, the book of Judges is dark. It is really, really, really bad, especially the end of Judges. If you have not read the end of Judges, it's just, it crushes you to read it. And you think, what is God going to do with these people? It looks like nothing good is going on. And out of that darkness and out of that disaster, you turn to the book of Ruth and you say, ah, God hasn't given up on them yet. There's still something good here. And God's still at work to save his people. It's not the way I would have done it. It's not the way we would have drawn it up. But he's taking this family to Moab and he's bringing Ruth back. And he's going to use Ruth and Boaz to continue this line. And to eventually bring a king, to bring the king, to bring Jesus. And that's exactly what you see in the cross in the point of Acts 2 and Acts 4. It's the darkest, most devastating most wicked, evil moment in all of the Bible when the sinless, righteous, perfect Son of God is murdered by wicked, evil men. And you look at that just like the disciples who panicked and you say, what good can come out of this? This is not how we would have drawn it up. And out of that darkness and out of that death, God brings life. And he says, I have a plan to save my people. And it's the exact same thing, the exact same pattern you see in the book of Ruth. So... There's hero number one, Miss Ruth. And we're going to pick up next week and uh, keep tracking through some of these Old Testament characters.